Shall we close in prayer? It's all been said. We're continuing in this series lessons that took me 71 years to learn. Um, this morning, who was that girl with the dark brown hair in the back seat? And um, this little picture here kind of characterizes our marriage and the differences that we have, um, Mars and Venus mowing the lawn. How many of you can relate to that? Yeah, good. So we've got that all on video. And um, of those that have been honest. A few years ago, a woman by the name of Pamela Paul wrote a book entitled The Starter Marriage and the Future of Matrimony. And though I don't agree with a lot of the conclusions uh, that she came to, I'm struck with the following statement. She said, this is the first children of the divorce generation. Her study concluded that more and more marriages today last five years and end in divorce before children come on the scene. And I know that some of you have been through or are going through divorce, and I can't be, be I'm not able to know all the pain and the, um, that you're going through. Um, over the years, I've talked to many couples, some very dear friends, and I've cried with them over failed and failing marriages. I've come to a conclusion of over 40 years of pastoring and nearly 48 years of my own marriage relationship is that marriage is hard work. Anybody doesn't think so is not married. Marriage is hard work. Uh, marriage is a relationship between a man and woman intended by God to be a one man, one woman relationship, to be a permanent bond in which many needs are satisfied, the need to love and be loved, the need for deep friendship, for sharing, for companionship, for sexual satisfaction, the need to escape loneliness. Marriage ought to be a bond uh, of love, reflecting the love Christ has for his people, a bond of sacrificial love where husband and wife have become one, one flesh, a unity. Uh, the marriage relationship is a school, a growing in a learning and growing environment in which if everything is as it should be, both partners can grow and develop. The relationship grows with them. If you can see marriage as an opportunity for growth, you can be satisfied and can satisfied can satisfy each other. A Christian marriage is similar to a solvent, a freeing up of the man and woman to be themselves and become all that God intends for them to become. Marriage is a refining process that God will use to have us become the man or woman he wants us to become. In Genesis, first book of the Bible, chapter 2, verse 18, it says, And the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a companion who will help him. While in college, uh, many years ago, I was asked by some girls from Illinois if I would drive them to O'Hare Airport so they could fly home. Uh, my pay, food. Uh, they promised to bring me some home-cooked food when I picked them up at the airport on their return. 
I took my roommate Glenn along with us, and on our way back to the campus, I said to Glenn, who was that girl in the back seat with the long brown hair? This August, that girl in the back seat with the long brown hair, and I will have been married 48 years. Uh, Sherry's unable to be with us here this morning. She's suffered from vertigo all week. I don't know if it's crystals in her ear. Abram, you and I have to talk. <laughs> we got to fix this girl. And uh, it's kind of good because I have a section that's coming up in which she was going to speak to us, but we videotaped it three years ago, and she will see it. And she won't be here to defend it. So. <laughs> Here are some lessons that I'm still learning about marriage and will continue to be a student. Successful marriage is not a 50-50 proposition. It's often been stated that that's true, but it's erroneous. Successful marriage is a 100-100 proposition. Unless each partner is willing to give it all up for the other, some form of marital disharmony will eventually occur. The Apostle Paul said, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And he's talking about the marriage relationship. We'll look at that passage in just a moment. Before I married Sherry, I didn't have a very good self-esteem. I'd been dating a girl for three years and had been trying to be somebody that I wasn't so that we could maintain the relationship. When I met Sherry, she accepted me for who I was. We did a lot of talking and spending time together. I was so determined to make this a good relationship without the baggage of too much physical intimacy. I actually called Sherry, she would agree with this. I called Sherry and apologized the first time I kissed her. I want you to know we got over that. <laughs> Our values were similar. Our expectations were similar. Our family backgrounds were similar. And we were married August 22, 1970 in Moline, Illinois. Let's jump ahead a few years. I told you that when I met Sherry, I didn't have a very good self-esteem. Sherry made me feel good about myself, and my self-esteem began to readily improve. On the other hand, Sherry had seemingly great self-esteem. I was attracted to her because of that when we got married. However, her self-esteem just about bottomed out and tanked after um, a few years of marriage. What happened? Sherry's self-esteem came from her mom and her dad. They continually built her up, but I didn't do that. I was a taker and not a giver. Now, some of you I know can relate to this. Consequently, the worst day of the month was the day the phone bill came. I didn't understand why she needed to spend so much time on the phone with her mother. She had me. <laughs> In the book of 1 Samuel, Elkanah said to his childless wife, Hannah, why be downhearted just because you have no children? You have me. Isn't that better than having 10 sons? You know what the answer to that is? Uh-uh. <laughs> I didn't understand why Sherry needed her mother. She had me. 
who was a giver, not a taker, not a giver. In the beginning, I tended to be an Elkanah. It all came to a head one day when Sherry said to me, and neither one of us will forget that, when did love die? And let me tell, have you tell, let me have her tell you about it and her own words, as I said, with this video that was filmed three years ago. At the end of my senior year in high school, um, my, my future looked like this to me. I was going to be an old maid school teacher with two poodle dogs. Now I hope you're laughing because I think this proves to you that I was 17 once. In the fall, I was 18 and my parents and I packed the car with much of my things and moved me off to college about three hours from home. As we hugged and waved goodbye, I cried and I know they cried too, because we all knew that this would be a life-changing experience. Within the first month, I met an older man, a seminary student, and we fell in love. I think we knew after the first date, which uh, turned into an all-day event, that we were going to be married, and so the next fall we were married. Ours was not a rocky courtship. It was very congenial. We really didn't disagree on much. We had similar backgrounds. Uh, we reveled in our uniquenesses, but after the wedding, they became just plain old differences. Dave was an athlete, and I was, and still am, a klutz. He liked to lie around and watch ball games on the weekends, and I wanted to do something, uh, go somewhere. During the weekdays after work, he wanted to go somewhere, and I wanted to just pull in and um, stay home and get ready for the next day. He loved athletic events, and I loved them all. He was spontaneous, and I needed advanced warning. He was practical, and I was the hopeless romantic. It was Mars and Venus. We had our first argument, and then I was sure that we were headed for the divorce court. There's one thing that always had and always will have a hold on me, though, and that is I made a promise to God, and I made a promise before God to love and to be faithful to my husband until we were parted by death. Uh, promises really should not be taken lightly. Because I want you to know that our life has not been continual wedded bliss, and because I want you to know that we are real, I've chosen two experiences to share with you. After we were married for about eight or nine years, Dave and I went to a seminar to learn how to do marriage workshops. This was one of the worst we weekends of my life. Uh, I had just had major female surgery at age 28 and the hormones from hell were raging. Uh, I'm sure that some of you can relate to that. Everything they said at the seminar could be applied to our marriage. I was a case. I cried for three days straight, and my wonderful 
loving, understanding husband said, uh, honey, we're here to learn how to do these workshops and it looks kind of bad that you've been crying all the time. <laughs> well, eight years came boiling up and overflowing out of me. I felt like a failure as a wife, as a mother, as a pastor's wife. I did not even like myself as a person. I told Dave that I wanted to run away, but I didn't have any place to go. Thank God, because if I had run, we wouldn't have worked things out. I cried and Dave listened. Dave cried and I listened. We asked for and offered forgiveness. We were restored. It was hard work, but we were committed. Some years later, after living in California, New Jersey, Minnesota, Dave was looking at a possible career change, still working with the church but not as a pastor. This job change would entail taking our then high school age daughters and moving them yet again to California. Uh, Dave's a big picture person, a planner, a dreamer, which are very admirable qualities. We checked out housing, we strategized, we projected into the future, but I could not believe that God was asking us to do this. And so I'm the one who put on the brakes. I said, no, I don't think this is God's will. That was the beginning of about three weeks of ugliness in our home. Very little dialogue, curtness with each other, and you guessed it, one night the volcano erupted. We started arguing and I left the bedroom, which I rarely, rarely did. I decided that I was going to test Dave to see just how much our relationship was worth. So I sat downstairs alone. I was waiting for him to come to me. I waited and I waited and I waited. Then a still small voice started to speak inside of me. You know what it said? A verse I learned as a child. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Oh, for heaven's sake, I wanted to win. You know that little saying, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy? Well, I realized that it did depend on me, my attitude, my willingness to listen and obey, my willingness to honor my commitment that I had made so many years before. We have had a good and for the most part happy 45 years of marriage. At times there have been trials and troubles, but we've turned to God and remembered our commitment. And in turn, God has never forgotten his commitment to us. In summary, I'd like to share what we have learned about sustaining a happy, healthy relationship. And you have an insert in your bulletin that you can follow along. Each one of these could be a sermon, but I'm just, for the sake of time, going to list them. The first and maybe most important is commitment. That's something that seems to be lacking today in society. We have to be committed to the relationship. We have to want to make it happen. 
and make it work. We have to have a want-to attitude. We have to make a decision to stick it out. That's what made it work for Sherry and me. Uh, Joshua 1.5 says, As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. And of course, this is talking about God's relationship with Moses, but I'm suggesting it's relevant for our relationship with our husband and wife. It involves mutual submission. This means that sometimes one is giving more than taking and at other times just the opposite. To have a successful relationship from time to time, we have to check to see if we are primarily a giver or a taker and then make the necessary adjustments. And this can be really tough and painful, but necessary. Um, Look in your Bibles real quickly at a familiar passage, Ephesians chapter 5. It's not on the screen, but just want you to point out, and you can use this as a tool to go back to if you're trying to work on your marriage relationship. In verse 21, speaking of wives and husbands, it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Uh, there's a lot of discussion about the role of the man, the role of the woman, and, but it begins, this whole process, with the fact that we are to submit to one another. In verse 22, it says, For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. In verse 25, For husband, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her. Verse 33 says, so I say, so again I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Um, good tool to get back in there if you want to be thinking about your marriage uh, relationship and making it work. Uh, where is God in our relationship? I, Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verse 12 says a triple braided cord is not easily broken. As the two of us strive to become like Christ individually, and you see the little chart on your insert, as the two of us strive to become like Christ individually, we strengthen our relationship together. Next, we are better off if we become best friends. Sherry told you that we are opposites when it comes to interest, but what she didn't tell you is that we have learned to find things that we both enjoy doing together. Uh, for instance, we both enjoy nature, we both love mountains and oceans and woods and animals and flowers, but I discovered early on that Sherry enjoys them better when she has a warm bed, shower, and secure shelter. So when we went to Yellowstone National Park, our favorite hangout, for our 30th anniversary, we rented a little cabin rather than a tent. <laughs> I walked out in the middle of the elk herd to take pictures, and Sherry stayed in the car, but we did it together. That's the key. We could have insisted on our likes, but we decided it would be better to find something that we could share together. Next, it involves unconditional love, the kind of love that Christ showers on all of us all of the time. We don't deserve each other's love, 
but we freely give it to one another. 1 Corinthians 13, most of us are familiar with this. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. Love does not demand its own way. Love is not irritable and it keeps no record of when it has been wronged. It is never glad about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never lose faith. It always, it's always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. And as I said earlier, and I repeat, we need to become students of our mate. Sherry and I have made it 48 years, actually 49, the year before we got married, of becoming students of each other. One of the most important things that we've discovered about marriage is that we had to learn to love each other. This is both for our own benefit and the benefit of our partner. This is where wisdom comes into play in our relationship. This is where life experience plays a huge, crucial role. In God's eyes, there's no such thing as a starter marriage. I thought it was very interesting this morning before coming here, I flipped on the news and I think it's Prince Harry that's about to get married. They decided not to have a pre-up agreement. I, I was startled in today's society with all the money that is involved in this process, they've decided not to have a pre-up. Now I'm not arguing pro or con on a pre-op, but I thought maybe there is hope and a basis for a relationship built on trust and marriage and commitment and not on securing your, your, your riches and your money. And as I, I, as I said and I repeat, the marriage relationship is a school, a learning and growing environment in which if in everything as, is as it should be, both partners can grow and develop. The relationship grows with them. If we can see marriage as an opportunity for growth, we can be satisfied and can satisfy each other. And now a word to younger people. That's you, bro. Yeah. <laughs> that, and I don't know if you're considering a life made at this time. <laughs> you never know. You know, this could be the beginning here. But here's my two words of advice. First of all, to girls, to ladies, contemplating marriage, check out your guy's dad. Does he love his wife? Is he compassionate and caring? Does he demand his own way or does he give it up for his wife? Does he demand to be waited on or does he do his part in the home? And guys, check out your girl's mom. Does she demand her own way? Does she have a critical and cynical spirit? Does she put her husband down? Why do we look for these things? Because likely that is what you're going to get in a wife or a husband. One day after the physical and sexy, sexy luster wears off, we wake up and find that we are married to our mother or father-in-law. <laughs> That's tough. And finally, Never put down your mate. That's a word to all of us that are married. 
or contemplating marriage. Always speak well of each other. Always look for the positive, not the negative. She may not look like she did in your teenage dreams, but guys, you don't either, not even close. <laughs> if your marriage is based only on what you can see, you have failed to fall in love. You started out falling in lust, and that will never sustain 48 years of marriage. If God packages your special gift with cellulite, rampaging hormones, or baldness and snoring, your mate is still God's special gift. Sherry will always be my bride and always be my friend. I'll always see her as that girl in the back seat with the long brown hair who became my wife 48 years ago. The following clip that we're going to close with is from the movie A Vow to Cherish from a few years ago. It captures everything we've tried to communicate this morning. The husband shares some tender words with his wife who has Alzheimer's disease. <laughs> 